The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. switch over to our scripture reading for the day. Um, So if you want to go ahead and uh, find in your Bibles or on your devices, we're going to be reading this morning from the book of Zechariah, chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. So reading from Zechariah chapter 8. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me, declares the Lord Almighty? This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now hear these words. Let your hands be strong so that the temple may be built. This is also what the prophets said who were present when the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord Almighty. Before that time, there were no wages for people or hire for animals. No one could go about their business safely because of their enemies, since I had turned everyone against their neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as I did in the past, declares the Lord Almighty. The seed will grow well, the vine will yield its fruit, the ground will produce its crops, and the heavens will drop their dew. I will give all these things as an inheritance to the remnant of this people." Just as you, Judah and Israel, have been a curse among the nations, so I will save you, and you will be a blessing. Do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Just as I had determined to bring disaster on you and showed no pity when your ancestors angered me, says the Lord Almighty, so now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and and to Judah. Do not be afraid. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to one another and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. Thanks, Kim. Good morning, church. Merry Christmas. We had our uh, staff and elder Christmas party last night. And um, we do that every, every year. And I had a, um, a killer Christmas sweater. 
And I thought about wearing it this morning, but just would have been too much, right? Too much, even for us, so you're welcome. Uh, this morning, we're, we're continuing on in our Advent series in Zechariah, and we're, we're honing in on, on this idea of peace. And um, you heard in that beautiful Advent reading that, um, that Nadia read by way of McKinsey, we, um, the world is not at peace, is it? It doesn't take long for us to look around and see that. I don't have to look much further than my own home, right? I've got three little girls, four, two, and a, and a toddler, a baby, like a one-year-old. Things are not at peace. Um, just recently, this is a new development, I came home the other day, and the first thing my four-year-old said to me, not exaggerating, it was like she w- we were in the middle of a conversation. I walk in the door and she goes, well, Audrey wasn't being nice to me, and so she threw this toy, and like, it was like, and I was, <laughs> I'm like so confused, it was like she thought we were having this dialogue, um, and Julie's like, Eva, what? what are you doing? We, he just got, we, we dealt with that, and why are you, anyway, things are not at peace. In a more serious note, right, um, we're so aware, acutely aware of, of the reality that we lack peace um, in our own culture, that we spend tons of energy uh, figuring out ways to distract ourselves from the lack of peace that we experience. Um, And if you don't feel a lack of peace in your life, there's probably just two things going on. One of two things. Either you've been following Jesus for so long, right, that you experience the peace and rest of God continually. God bless you. Um, Or you might be like the rest of us, um, where you've become so good at distracting yourself from your own internal conflict or lack of peace um, that you don't notice it anymore, right? We're we're so good at numbing ourselves and medicating ourselves to not have to face that internal conflict, that lack of shalom, uh, as the Hebrew word for peace is. Us Americans are very good at distracting and medicating our discontentment um, with more stuff, more media, uh, more toys, more hobbies, more work, more, more, more. We have so much. The pain of, of wrestling with discontentment in our lives, in our hearts, that we feel inside, and the, the lack of peace uh, it quickly turns into, um, when we feel that discontentment, it's like, uh, don't, don't think about that, look at this instead, right? That's our gut response every time. Don't, nope, I don't want to deal with that, I'm going to go do this thing. And sometimes we justify it with, well, I'm, being, I'm just being productive, I'm just getting stuff done, but so often it's our way of getting out of having to deal with a lack of internal peace that we face. If you're on social media often, right, you see outrage every day, right? You see this lack of peace in the world all the time, um, but because the, the outcry is always coming at us constantly in our 24-7 news cycle, right? We grow desensitized to it. So those stories that, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago would have rocked some, someone's world, it, now it's, it's a drop in the bucket. It's nothing because it's always continually coming at us. The amount of information that we uh, intake is, is insane. Um, I, I heard a st- statistic recently that 
the amount of information in one uh, New York Times newspaper is more information than someone would have gotten, like news, uh, in their entire life in the 17th century. That's only three centuries ago, right? Just a few hundred years ago. The, the, the amount of information, like, and we have more than a newspaper, right? We've got the world in our pocket. Every once in a while, though, we'll see something on the news or we'll see something in real life, right, in our city that does actually shake us awake out of that apathy, out of being desensitized to the problem uh, of, of not having peace. Sometimes we, we see something in our day-to-day and God's spirit just kind of cuts, right, cuts us to the quick at, at the heart, and it, we're awakened to the reality of what we've been forgetting or overlooking. Um, while I was driving the other day, and I don't share this to sound self-congratulatory, I don't like when preachers do that, but I, I don't know, I, I suspect you've had moments like this where you realize it's been so long since you've felt some deep, like a deep sense of compassion for someone or you've noticed something that was deeply wrong with the world in a way that you just hadn't felt in a while. I was driving through a parking lot and I, I saw two men, um, I don't know their story, so I don't want to, I don't want to presume too much. But they, they didn't look healthy or well, and they were cleaning out a car that was filled with trash, and there, was, there, there sat a toddler in a stroller, you know, just watching them. And it was like, I mean, God's spirit just like smacked me. I mean, I was just, tears like, oh, what, what, that little boy, you know. I think we all have those moments where God sort of wakes us up and he, and, he, and he sort of illuminates to us in a fresh way the pain and the brokenness, the fact that things are not whole as they should be in our world. But then it often dissipates just as quickly as it comes, right? Because we're back to the, the, the news cycle, back to the onslaught of information. As believers, you and I are living in this world, struggling to balance the reality and identity that we've been called to with uh, the reality uh, that things are not at peace, right? And so the, 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 the reality and the identity that you and I have been called to is to be uh, peacemakers, right? To bring peace on earth, to bring wholeness, shalom to the world, and yet we live in a world that's continually broken, we are in this new reality thanks to Jesus, right? So we experience some level of shalom thanks to Christ, but things around us still are broken um, and still are disordered and chaotic. Now, enter Israel's story, right? Israel's story is not all that dissimilar. They are stuck living in this time of in-between, right? A, a, a present reality and yet a future reality that isn't fully here, they are in the, the land that God promised to them, the promised land, but they are not fully free from Persian rule, and the land seems to be desolate. It doesn't feel like there's much promise in this promised land. And so for Advent this year, we're looking at the story of Israel through the prophet Zechariah, and we're in chapter 8 this week, and I just want to quickly answer a question that I would have 
if I were you. Why are we looking at an Old Testament prophet for Advent? Okay. Through the prophet Zechariah, God reminds his people of his promises to them for future blessings so that they might stay the course in the present day doing justice, having mercy with peace, hope, joy, and love, okay? In the exact same way, right, every December the church has paused to remind herself of God's promises to us, his people, right, for future blessings that that Jesus will one day come again so that we will stay the course, doing justice, having mercy, with love, joy, peace, and hope. And that is why we're looking at Zechariah. These, these Old Testament prophets, story after story, of God reminding his people of his promises to them. And so it's really fitting for us during this season of, of waiting and hoping in the coming of Jesus again. And so with that in mind, chapter 8 is essentially, it's a restatement of promises that God makes through Zechariah, back in chapter 2, here's what he says. In chapter 2, he says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I will come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord that day, and they shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. So there's, there's this promise that God is making. You remember the, the passage last week that Oshua preached, right? God is rebuking his people, right? Saying, you're doing these rituals, these spiritual things for your own, your own ends. You're not doing, that, doing those things to get more of me, more of Yahweh, right? You're doing them for yourself. And now God says, despite that, I will continue to be faithful to you even though you are not faithful to the covenant we have. So God is reminding us, right? Israel's lacking in compassion towards the nations, right? They are overlooking the overlooked, right? God's people have been called over and over and over again throughout the scriptures to to not forget those who are marginalized, who are on the edges of society, the widows, the orphans, the fatherless, And Israel repeatedly fails to listen. And so God decides, I will teach them to have compassion on those who are less than by making them less than. Right? So he teaches them through experience what it's like to be poor and forgotten by making them a nation who lacks. And so, despite our promise-breaking patterns... Here in chapter 8, we see that God will make good on his promises because he's a promise-keeping God. And so this section of verses that Kim just read is made up of seven short oracles or realities or promises of God. And so by way of reminder, seven, right, is the number of what? Completion, right, or wholeness in the Old Testament. And that's an interesting reality given that we're talking about peace, or shalom, which is this idea of being made whole or complete. And so these seven uh, realities are meant to communicate Yahweh's strong and rugged commitment to his people. Um, So we're not going to have time to look at all seven. That would be awesome, but we don't have 
that much time this morning. We will take a look at a few of the promises, though, beginning here in verse 1. Look again. It says, And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Promise number one. God is jealous for his people. God is jealous for his people. This first promise in chapter 8 here sort of is the foundation for the rest of the promises and realities that we will read about. It's sort of the the ground level. You've got to get this. Everything is built off of this reality that God is a jealous God, right? So I want us to consider for a moment the interplay between God's love and his wrath, right? Because it says that he is He's jealous to the point of anger and wrath, and that just sort of seems strange. How, how does love and wrath work together? And so God's love is so great for you and I, right, for his people, that while he is patient and he's slow to anger, his wrath is eventually stirred up at the mistreatment and abuse of his people, Eventually, his wrath is stirred up at the mistreatment and abuse of his people because true, deep, robust love is always connected to anger because of the egregious nature of sin. Sin is so egregious, so messed up, God is so good, so holy, it's, it's love and wrath are the, are, the, are, are the two sides of the same coin, as it were. And so eventually, God's going to get frustrated. And, and you and I know this intuitively, right? It doesn't even take us to see someone that we, we barely know, a stranger, that we could, be, we could see being abused in some way, for us to feel a sense that that has to stop, right? That abuse has to stop. It is not okay to prey on others, God in the same way, right? In his righteousness, how much more? If his love is all that much deeper, would he feel anger towards abuse and sin against one another? Moving on, verse 3 says, Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Excuse me. God will dwell with his people. Promise number two. God will dwell with his people. God is in in the holy land with his people. Whenever we read of Israel, this is an interesting an interesting reality we can tend to overlook if we're not careful in the Old Testament. Whenever we read of Israel returning to the promised land, right, or here in our passage, Yahweh dwelling with them again in their midst in the land, we need to remember that the the geographical areas represented God's manifest presence with his people, right? It's easy to be confused by Old Testament passages or references to the promised land or, or think that maybe it doesn't really matter anymore because we've got the New Testament and it doesn't really talk about it as much. But that's not really true. The Bible is bookended 
isn't it? By stories of God's people in a particular place, right? In a particular land. Um, Think about the story of the garden, right? Adam and Eve with God. God has made them his, his priests, right? His his peace, they're called to bring peace, to cultivate the garden, to spread it out, uh, to, to, to enlarge it. Um, they have one uh, stipulation that they, they don't keep, and so God removes them from the land, doesn't he? He exiles them. He sends them into a foreign land where they have to make a new uh, a temporary home. Um, and, and the rest of Scripture, right, that, that story of Adam and Eve being removed from the garden is supposed to set us up. And cue us to Israel being sent into exile in Babylon, right? And that's the story throughout the scriptures. It's the journey of God's people getting back to the land. And and not just a place, but back into the presence of God. And so we have to take seriously these passages. They aren't just geography for geography's sake. We're talking about the presence of God here. Um, here's the thing. Israel is back in the promised land in Zechariah here, aren't they? But something's still not right. So they're in the land, but something's off. Verse 3 says, Yahweh says, I have returned, right? I've returned to the land. And at the very same time, it also says, I will dwell in the land. Okay, which is it? right? You've returned to the land, then it also says you will dwell in the land. How can both be true? There's two realities being painted here, Um, a present reality and a future one. God was already present in Zechariah, in his community, but he would dwell among them in a new way, right, when the temple was completed. They were currently rebuilding the temple, Um, And then he would go on to dwell with them in an even greater way than that later on when it says in Zechariah 14, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, which is kind of, again, a reminder of Eden, right? The rivers and the waters that flow through Eden. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So there's this now and not yet reality that they experience. I, I have returned, and yet I'm, I'm still going to dwell one day fully. So there's this future reality of God's kingdom to be fully realized, and that wasn't the, the, the experience the Israelites had had yet. It was a reality they were to look back to, they were to hope in, uh, they were to help bring about this, this kingdom reality where God was fully dwelling with them by doing justice, having mercy. Um, and in doing those things, they would begin to experience, right, the richness of the kingdom of God on earth. But they would continue to long for and wait for God to come fully to be with them. The same is true for us. This is why we remind ourselves of these Old Testament stories in Zechari- like Zechariah. We too look forward to a hope, to a reality where God will fully be with us. Um, this is why we celebrate 
Advent every single year where we long for the future day when all of our discord, all of our sin, all of our brokenness will be dealt with. It will be done. It is fully and finally finished. We hope in that day, right? Because we long for that true peace. Now verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand, because of great age. Okay? And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Promise number three. God's people will thrive. This image, right, of old, it says specifically, it doesn't just say men and women. Old men, old women sitting in the streets while kids play, while they watch little kids play. This is a picture of a thriving, robust community. It's a future that has no war, right? No disease, no destruction, no fighting. It's peaceful. It's an idyllic reality that is to come. So remember, at this point in the story, Jerusalem, the land, it was a desolate place. It hadn't been restored to what it would once or what it once was. And it's really interesting because there's older prophets in the scriptures that actually prophesy about Jerusalem, about this land, and they say um, that, that this land is destitute and will forever be condemned to the point of destruction where foreign armies will take over because of the injustice and the wickedness that God's people had allowed to go on there for so long. And yet, here, we see a future, Yahweh promises, where both the wisdom of old age and the energy and vibrancy of youthfulness is represented in these places that were once filled with injustice and wrongdoing. The vision of old age and youthfulness paints a picture of shalom, doesn't it? Remember, shalom is a state of wholeness. And one of the things that's interesting about shalom, this idea of peace in the scriptures, is that it's not just the removal of conflict. So often we think of peace as, if I just got rid of that situation, or if that relationship was no longer in discord, right? If, if war wasn't going on, then we would have peace. But it's not, the biblical idea of peace is even better than that. It's not just removing conflict and war. It's replacing it with something better, something greater, right? There's more to it than that. And here we have a vision of older men and women watching little kids run and play happily the beauty of old age is represented in wisdom, right? And the beauty of the youth is represented in their vibrancy. And together we see that injustice and wickedness in those areas, in that land, is not only removed, but it's replaced with something better, with something more beautiful, a thriving whole community. Doesn't that sound good? That sounds like something we all want. We don't fight, we don't bicker, we don't rage and war and sin and hurt. And it seems impossible, but God knew that it wouldn't feel attainable to the Israelites, right, or to, to you and me. 
He knew that it wouldn't feel attainable to them. So let's keep reading. Look at verse 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. This is an interesting verse, verse 6 especially, right? God says, if it's marvelous in the sight of you, right? If you feel like it's marvelous, how much more marvelous for me to do it? And that word marvelous here means something like uh, too difficult to, to understand or beyond a person's capability to make sense of. And so the question that Yahweh is asking is basically just because this is too difficult for you to imagine, right, this thriving community of shalom and peace, does it mean that it's too difficult for me to accomplish? Just because you can't imagine a thriving at peace future doesn't mean I can't make it a reality. And so Yahweh knew that the Israelites wouldn't think true shalom could be reached because the reconstruction of the temple wasn't very exciting or promising. The Israelites were still picking up the pieces, right, of, of Babylonian rule after the destruction that was brought about by their armies. God's people were scattered all over the region. They weren't in one place as they had been before. And so they're, why would I trust in this vision or, or believe this promise? They weren't united like they were in days of old. The land was a mess. The people were scattered. But notice... Not only does Yahweh say that he's going to gather his people together, right, from the east country and the west country, from every region, but he falls back on his own covenant promises to his people. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Israel will believe in God's promise of shalom because of Yahweh's rugged commitment to restore and to renew them and the land. He is a promise-keeping God, and he has promised to bring peace to the hearts of his people. I wonder, where do things feel hopeless for you? Where do you feel a lack of, of completeness or, or wholeness in your life? Where is there conflict and disorder where you want to see peace and, and, and unity and restoration? I want to challenge you for a moment as we ask these questions and think through these things. Don't jump too quickly to politics. That's an easy out, okay? Obviously, it's ridiculous. It's chaos, right? Don't, don't, don't jump too quickly to, to some problem out there in the world, right? Frankly, it's too easy. We can all look and say, yeah, it, that's pretty messed up. But I think that Jesus would challenge us to first consider the lack of shalom in our own hearts before we move to a lack of peace out there. My home community considered this question this week. Where, where do you experience currently a lack of shalom? Right? Where, where do you need a, a sense of wholeness and completeness? And it was a really meaningful time for us to share um, where we desire that. For some of us, um, peace is lacking 
in things that are out of our control, right? There's situations, there's circumstances, things have happened, circumstances have changed that, are, that aren't in our control, and it brings us pain, discord, uh, discomfort, disorder. For others of us, we recognize the need for shalom in our interior life, in our interior life. Maybe you've heard that term before. The interior life is that, that internal dialogue that you have with yourself, right? That, the resting place of our hearts and our minds. It's where we process and we make sense of our experiences and our emotions. And for me, I often find that I experience a lack of feeling whole or complete as a result of not welcoming God into my interior life, into that place where I'm processing my experiences and my emotions. I don't do that enough on a regular rhythm. Here's what I mean. I'm not, if I'm not careful, it's easy to allow my, my inner dialogue uh, to fade into disorder or into conflict as I think about relationships and those around me. Um, if I'm not careful and I don't invite Jesus into those places, into those relationships, into those experiences, as I think about that person, uh, th- that situation, I will quickly fade into Andrew's default setting. I'm prone to conflict. Like, I'm prone to, to challenge. I'm prone to conflict. I have, it will not be good for me. But it's really easy to do it. It's very easy to subtly forget, to invite Jesus into that place. I, I don't think I'm alone here. Um, and God knew, right, that we would find it more natural to go about life our own sort of, in our own sort of way, processing things the way that feels best to us. And this is why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Pray without ceasing. Praying without ceasing sounds daunting. No? You guys are all doing it? Great. It sounds, it sounds daunting to me. But I really think so much of what that means, praying without ceasing, it really boils down to mindfulness. Being mindful of Christ in your daily rhythms as you go about your day. When we pray, we don't just ask for stuff, right? We don't just pray for other people, but we remind ourselves of who God is and we intentionally aim to process our experiences through the lens of Jesus. Um, Man, that we would become a community who is marked by that mindfulness, who's marked by continually praying, Right, so that, so that we can actually bring peace and shalom in here, then we begin to stand a chance to bring peace and shalom out there. Does that make sense? We often think, this is my assessment, okay? So I'm not saying this is dead on for every one of us, but I know for years, after beginning to follow Jesus, as I look back at that time, I recognize my understanding of what it meant for me 
that Jesus brought peace into my life was simply this. I was a broken, partying, uh, brash goof, right, before I met Jesus, before I decided to really give my life to him. Um, Once I did that, once I decided to follow him, he brought a sense of wholeness, right, a sense of rest, uh, of completeness to my former life. Right? I, I felt a lot of conflict and discord and, and dissatisfaction about the way things used to be for me. And now that I've given my life to Jesus, he has made things at peace because of his forgiveness for those things I've done that I shouldn't have done. Because of his grace, right? And then I moved past peace after that. And it was like it just never really came up. This idea of peace being something that we're marked by is more than just a one-time moment where God makes right our past by his forgiveness, right? It's a, it's a continual effort to be marked by peace, to be mindful, to pray unceasingly, to invite Jesus into that inner dialogue where we're processing those relationships, that work experience, Fill in the blank. The beautiful vision of human flourishing that we see here in Zechariah began with each one of the Israelites, um, and it began again with Jesus and the disciples, and it begins yet again with you and me as we welcome Christ into our difficult marriage, into our self-loathing, into our conflict at work, into our uncertainty about the future, into our financial dysfunction. God begins to bring shalom, peace, wholeness to our hearts, to our minds, and to our interior life. And I want to be totally honest here and remind us that it doesn't always feel like God is bringing peace when we invite him to do this. Ironically, especially if it's an area you have not allowed Christ into in your life, a habit, a relationship, a a dysfunction of some sort, it will feel like war initially. The moment that you begin to let Jesus into those parts of your life, your interior life that maybe only you and a, a few others know about, that you've held out, right, that you've kept the door shut from him entering, it will feel like war is raging. And that's the irony because we are wrestling, right, for the first time to submit that part of our lives to Jesus. But friends, keep going. Day by day by day. It's not in these grand moments of euphoric sort of realizations about God that we grow. Yes, those are great. We want those. right? We're not against those. But so often... The pages of scripture show us God changes us by daily, moment to moment, submitting our lives to his rule and his reign. His yoke is easy, his burden is light, but if you let him in, especially in the beginning to some of those dark areas, it will feel like war. But keep going. As time goes on, you will begin to experience the wholeness, the completeness of the shalom that we all long for. This is one of the reasons 
Oshawa mentioned this in our, uh, when we were talking about this passage, that you know, the biblical worldview, um, it provides the resources to work towards a, a type of re- this type of shalom reality, right? This type of sort of incredible, euphoric, idyllic reality where no more war, no more conflict, a thriving community. It provides the resources, but it never gives us the false hope that we're going to reach it in this life. And that's something that I love about the Christian worldview, that it's, I just feel like it's so, I'm not just a Christian because I believe Jesus saved me, though I am, right? I'm a Christian because I think it, it's, it's satis- the worldview is satisfying. It makes sense of reality. And to look at this reality and to see the discord and the war and the conflict, to recognize that God is not saying, oh, it's all going to be gone. He is saying, though, that peace and shalom can be experienced in the here and the now. And that day by day by day, we can become people of peace who then extend it to others. But it begins here. Um, in closing, I want to ask a couple questions. What does it look like for you to be an agent of peace in your relationships? What does it look like for you to be an agent of peace in your relationships? What does it mean to bring peace to the world on a larger scale? Right? It might be easy to sort of think about it, well, I can think about making, bringing peace to this particular relationship where there's conflict, um, but on a sort of a massive scale, how, how do we think about bringing peace to the world? I think that good art, good art, beautiful things, they bring beauty, it brings order, it brings completeness and wholeness to the world. Um, I think being kind and generous with your time, uh, being kind and generous with your assumptions of others is a way that we bring shalom to the world, to our city. Um, This is why uh, work, right? God has designed work as a part of human flourishing. It's not a post-fall reality. Okay, you screwed up in the garden. Now you got to go work, right? God built that part of who we are into us from the beginning. It was part of his good design. And so I think our work is one of the ways that we can bring shalom and peace to the world. Whether you're crunching numbers, right, in a job, uh, or you're counseling a marriage, a broken marriage, or you're you're mopping up spilt Gatorade, right, on the floor. It doesn't matter what it is. All of those things are helping to bring order and beauty and wholeness to our world. But how then... Go even further. How do you bring peace and wholeness to those relationships? Ask those questions this week. What would it look like for you to help others flourish and thrive? Might it be that you need to become better and better at calling out the gifts that you see in others? Hey, I I see this thing in you that I think is really beautiful. Um, I see this gift that God has given you. I know for me, one of the the gifts I've recognized as we talk about peace recently in the last few months is the gift of uh, a Jesus-like presence, 
a presence that is unassuming, uh, that is gentle. You have those people in your life that you get around and you just, right? There's no, I'm not one of those people, by the way. Um, there's no like, oh, what, it, you know, there's no on edge feeling. There's just a sense of peace. Call that out in people. Don't overlook those little, and, and don't be afraid to mention it. Those are meaningful ways that we build each other up as the body of Christ. Finally, who is lacking wholeness or who is feeling broken within your spheres of influence that you can love and serve? Whether it's in your home community with others or in your relationships interpersonally at work, in your neighborhood, who can you help to bring a sense of peace and shalom to? May we bring the peace of Christ to bear in our hearts and in our world a little bit more this Advent season as we wait for the day of Christ's return where all things will be made whole again. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you are the peacemaker. You are shalom embodied, enfleshed. And you came. Unlike these Israelites, we have the, the, the benefit. The, we are spoiled to be living on this side of the other side of the cross. And so we have even more reason to trust that when you say one day all suffering, all brokenness, all heartache, all conflict, all war will end, we know that you mean it. Because of your son coming down, humbling himself, bringing wholeness and restoration to a broken and hurting world. And you, in your kindness, invite us to do the same. You have not kept it for yourself. You have called us to reap what we sow, to be a blessing in order to receive the blessing of peace. Would you help us to be men and women who more and more and more through mindful prayer, unceasing, that, that, that sounds so crazy, but, but God, you've, you've called us to it. Through your spirit, we trust that it's possible. Would you help us to be mindful men and women who are intentional about how we process our relationships as we seek the peace and shalom of Christ? And would you help us to bring that joyfully to the world, into our workplace, into our homes, into our areas of hobby and recreation. Thank you, Jesus, for your goodness to us. We love you. Amen. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.